1: Hello, Heart of Healthcare listeners. I am your host, Hallie Tecco, And today I wanted to share a special episode from my other podcast, Closing Time, with my friend and co-host, Michael Esquivel. The topic is one that has come up a lot lately with healthcare founders, and that is, what's going on with M&A in our space and what can we expect next year? We go over everything from the digital health deals that we saw in 2023, what we and the industry expect in 2024, what exactly acquirers are looking for, and tips for building a company that can be bought, not sold. Enjoy! Hello, listeners, and welcome to Closing Time, the podcast that provides an inside look at the world of healthcare startups and venture capital. I'm Hallie Tecco,
0: And I'm Michael Escabel. Each episode, we get the privilege of meeting entrepreneurs at the forefront of healthcare innovation. You get to eavesdrop on pitches that are reshaping healthcare from founders daring to think differently.
1: So pull up a chair and join us as we journey into the future of healthcare, one pitch at a time. Last year, we put together two episodes on the topic of term sheets. You all liked it so much, we decided to do another special episode, this time on digital health M&A, mergers and acquisitions. My co-host Michael has been helping me structure and negotiate exits for many years, including being counsel for the sale of my prior company, Natalist, to Everly Well in 2021. Which was, by many standards, a successful and smooth acquisition. I'd like to think. You're here, Michael. I'm excited to dive into this topic with you today.
0: Well, good, good to, good to be talking, Hallie. It's a, it's a very timely topic in our sector, as you know.
1: Yes, yes. Happy New Year, by the way. Happy
0: New Year, my dear friend.
1: How is J.P. Morgan?
0: It was uh, an incredible energy to it, for sure, this year. Cool. Uh, okay. lots, lots of great attendees, lots of great networking opportunities, saw a lot of folks that were flying in from the East Coast. So yeah. always always great to get together with folks and yeah. uh, chance to compare yeah. notes and, and say hello to old friends and make some new ones.
1: Yeah. So since the back half of 2022, M&A in our space has simply plummeted. In fact, Rock Health just came out with their uh, funding report that in 2023, M&A was down 23% year over year. I know Fenwick tracks this rather closely. What exactly have you been seeing over the past 12 to 18 months?
0: Yeah, Heli, it's a great question. And it's interesting because as we've seen in the press... Uh, there has been an incredible focus, understandably, from a psychological perspective on the capital markets. Everybody's talking about the dearth of IPOs. But the reality for our industry, not only for digital health, but the tech ecosystem more broadly, is that something like 75 to 80 percent of all exits are m and So the more impactful consideration here is not what's going on with IPOs, but what's going on with M&A. And as you alluded to in your lead-in for question here, uh, it's been uh, dormant. The M&A channel has really been dormant. And I think it's a function of a couple of different considerations uh, that has gripped the psychology of the serial acquirers. Number one, I think has been that we've had a bit of an anti-tech, and I'm using that tech label very, very broadly, Yeah, a bit of an anti-tech regulatory environment coming out of D.C., and I think it's put an enormous amount of additional risk on M&A. And as a consequence, I think it has helped to chill that otherwise active channel of exit for for startups. So I think that's been one big factor. The other has been that with the EKG-like swings in the public markets, the serial acquirers Mm -hmm. are under a lot of pressure that if they're going to deploy capital to buy venture-backed startups, that that capital has to result in M&A that's immediately accretive to EPS, And if Mm -hmm. it's, if it's instead what you see a lot of in the venture backed sell side M&A space where it's about acquiring a team or about a medium or long term set of objectives, I think Wall Street has been less accommodating to that type of M&A over the last, you know, 12 or 18 months. And as a result, it's made those serial acquirers also a little gun shy to really engage in it. So I think those factors are really, really, putting a drag on the overall MA environment and as a result yeah. we, we just haven't seen a lot of it.
1: Yeah. But we have had acquisitions that have done really well in the digital health space. I would say the one medical acquisition PillPack. Okay, I'm talking about Amazon maybe. <laughs> um but you know, uh Optum's, you know, Optum and CVS have had huge acquisitions that the public markets have been happy about, no?
0: Yeah, for sure. And those were, like I said, they was, those were really accretive to the overall business model of those buyers. Yeah. What I'm talking about more is sort of the, the post-series C, post-series D venture back startup where maybe it's a bit of a point solution and the, mm. the buyer is thinking, I need to roll it up into a larger platform that I, the buyer, have created. And so this yeah. point solution acquisition makes sense
1: so fewer bigger deals that improve eps
0: yeah i think i think so i mean look uh, the the data is out there but i'm not sure yeah. we've seen in 2023 at least i don't think we saw a billion dollar no. digital health exit i i think the no. largest was no. that r1 rcm them. yeah you've probably yeah, got yeah, that okay. deal
1: okay so i wrote them all down for R- for today let's let's go through them because they're kind of names that they're not silicon valley names for digital health okay so um, acquired ninety-six point ninety-eight point six, which has an AI-backed virtual care platform. The article said for up to a hundred million dollars, which you know what that means, but the company had raised 247 million.
0: That's hard. Like, that's hard.
1: That's that's not a great exit. Not, not at all. Um on the other side, the R1 RCM, um, they acquired the revenue cycle management company, Eclara, for $670 million in cash and warrants. So that was good. I don't really know either of these companies, do nope,
0: you? Nope, nope, yeah. not well.
1: Um, and then Multiplan acquired the analytics and AI company Benefits Science Technologies for $160 million. Those are the three that I, I have tracked. Are there any that I'm missing? No, I think I think you I think, yeah. you
0: I think you capture the ones that we've seen as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, we, we just didn't see the volume of activity, no. we didn't see any ten-digit exits.
1: So, Michael, is this what you saw in tech too, or was the problem of slowing down M and A specifically in digital health?
0: Yeah, great question, Hallie. I think it is certainly consistent across all of the uh, industries within the broad tech and life sciences you know, ecosystem. There's no question. But, you know, there are some differences when thinking about executing an M&A deal in the digital health space versus what you see in tech. And I I think they're largely the same, but there is one critical difference, and that relates to regulatory. In Mm. traditional Mm -hmm. sort of consumer (laughs) enterprise tech, regulatory considerations aren't always a significant driver of deal value. And in health tech, regulatory is significant, as we all know. It could impact valuation. So we had a company uh, last year that was getting acquired. And the FDA, to that point in the product uh, a roadmap, had not expressed interest in regulating that particular uh, product. And it came out as we were negotiating the deal after the term sheet had been signed that um, the FDA was starting to express more interest in potentially regulating that that particular type of product. So those future regulatory the considerations, like, yeah, thanks. those thanks, future guys. regulatory considerations can come yeah. into play. So I yeah. do think it, it it drives a longer diligence process, than you might sure. see in traditional oh tech, gosh. you know, there's going to be a lot of energy. Our, our spent diligence
1: on it. was. With Remember? three and a half months, it was so intense. So that wasn't was that was that normal for that healthcare then? That is very,
0: very normal, oh, Hallie. You you it was just so intense. In.
1: And the hard part is like you're working your full time job because if it doesn't go through, like you can't have the company, you know, like in a place where you're worse off because you spent all this time with diligence. But the diligence is like a full time job.
0: It it really is. I mean, M&A is a massive distraction. And so you've got to go in it with gusto and energy and excitement about the combination, because if you're not. It will test yeah. all your patience, all of your, yeah, you know, energies. And oh so you've gosh. got to make sure this is the right yeah. fit for you because it is going to be a yeah. massive distraction. And if it doesn't come together for some reason, you're going to be behind where you would have been had you not entertained the whole process in the first place. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, I mean, you need to keep the, the team, the the circle small within your company, right? Like, you have to limit the number of people who are working on this project. Otherwise, if the entire company is distracted by it, again, like, business, you still have to do business as usual. You still have customers to serve during this time period.
0: Yeah. And what you don't want is getting to the signing and then, and and then the buyer on the eve of that, or on the eve of closing saying, man, the business has had a material adverse effect. It's, it's, Uh it's completely cratered. (laughs) And, and there are, there are, Provisions and merger agreements where parties can walk away. And so you just, you're absolutely right. Like we said earlier, you're juggling, you know, chainsaws and here you've got to keep the team narrow and focused (laughs) on who's going to execute on the deal while letting everybody else Uh, continue to focus on their business, on the business.
1: Okay. So eight digital health companies have been acquired for over a billion dollars. Um, and then going back to kind of how many unicorns we have, uh, we have a hundred and some. Um, you know, privately valued, is it gonna catch up? Is this just like a lagging indicator, the huge MA deals that have been far and few between?
0: You know, or are
1: those days
0: over? It's it's a great question and 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 the venture side of that analysis is, I think, the canary in the coal mine for the M&A side. What we're finally starting to see is uh, a realization that maybe the back half of 2021 period where we saw the frothiness, uh, I don't want to use the B word uh, around the ecosystem, but the frothiness of that time, we're starting to now see uh, more alignment coming between what companies and founders are willing to sell equity at and what investors are willing to buy equity at. And so I think as that starts to normalize and as we start to get more alignment there, I think it will start to feed into the psychology of M&A and therefore... You know, I could see a number of those companies which have real businesses, exciting products, but probably can't in the exit environment get a 10-digit exit, can still get a very, very significant, you know, nine-digit exit. So uh, there are scenarios where our our founders and our employees can really win in those deals. Um, And and so we'll we'll see what happens, but I think we're getting a normalization on expectations.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's too. That was that was my lesson as a founder. Was I certainly didn't have a billion dollar exit. Um, I would say I had you know a single or a double. Maybe it would call it. Was it was definitely a double. Um, I was
0: your counsel on that journey. An, that was a great yeah. outcome for, for Look, two like years. I made my
1: investors. Yeah, That made my investors money. I made a you know a good amount of money.
0: It it does raise. Yeah, that I mean, bar. I think
1: founders. Yeah. And founders should think about that when they're fundraising is, you know, you could you can have a really good exit that is life changing, that sets you and your family up for years of success and you can retire off of it like that. You can have a really, really great exit. But if you've taken too much VC funding, they're not going to let you do that.
0: It's going to be hard. It's hard to square that circle when, when, you know, the yeah. venture investors are looking for, especially the early and, 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 and middle ones looking for five, 10x or more returns. Yeah. It's, sure. it's hard.
1: That's, I mean, me as an angel investor, you as an angel investor, we want to <laughs> see right. huge, you know, <laughs> huge returns. Um, but as a founder, you know, the, the more money you, you take on, the more of your company you give up. All of a sudden, you're not the majority owner of your company, and you have a board that's making decisions, and it's it's going as big as possible. And I've seen founders who have turned down deals. I'm thinking of, this is in the tech world, but years ago, years ago, but Michael, you and I were friends then, Dave Morin had that company path. And they got an offer was a 100 million dollar offer
0: something like that from Google. I think that's right. I think that's right.
1: And it had been you know a very short life cycle of the company and they didn't accept it. I wonder and Dave's a great guy. I'm sure he would tell his story. Um, but I'm sure his investors were like, "No, let's go bigger. Let's go bigger." And then, you know, the company's not around anymore.
0: Yeah, I think I think this is where and your overarching theme is the right one, but this is where it's so important as a founder to find investors that are aligned with you. There are a lot of VCs out there who are really in it for the relationship game, in it to bet on that founder. And I've seen the reverse where a founder does want to sell and the venture investor, because she believes so much in the founder, is willing to support that M&A, even though they think there's a bigger opportunity mm. down the line. So I think it does cut both ways. And I think it's important, therefore, sure. to make sure that whoever you bring onto your board, onto your cap table, is philosophically someone that's aligned with you and your values and your principles. Because if you don't, that's where it becomes really, really even more challenging, where you've taken on a lot of venture capital yeah. and and you've got investors that maybe are less focused yeah. on the relationship.
1: Yeah. So I wrote a blog post recently called Selling Your Healthcare Startup, and I interviewed four founders who sold their digital health companies for over $100 million. I can put a link to it in our show notes. Let's do it. Serby Sarna, who sold her company, Envision Medical, for $275 million, shared a quip that I love. She said, be bought, not sold. Like, we know what this means, but what does this mean? How do you build a company to be bought?
0: Yeah, I, th- I think that is such wise advice. I mean, it's 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 a phrase I use. I know a lot of bankers and other lawyers use it, too. Y- you don't want to be seen by a potential acquirer as you're going sort of hat in hand, sort of saying, hey, buy me, buy me. Instead, you want to lay out a compelling business, a compelling synergy, and make that buyer want to come chase you. Make that buyer say, "I've got to have this asset," and there's a little bit of poker mm. involved for sure. And, yeah. and this is where you know a good investment banker could potentially add some value in helping you navigate, creating that sense of both urgency and want on the part of the of the corp dev team of the buyer. And and if you can create that special recipe, I think it uh, it does lend you to a situation. We have the leverage to. To on the margins yeah. affect not only valuation, but some of the other key terms that we'll talk about later. So I, I, I yeah. think it's, yeah. I love that phrase and, and, and kudos I to Surrey, you know, great companies are yeah. bought, not sold.
1: I think, and you know, having M&A on your mind from day one, I think is really important. When I was building Natalist, I was literally reaching out to potential acquirers. I had a list, reaching out to them very early on. And I asked them directly, like, my goal is to build something of value and sell it to someone like you what do you need to see? And I had that built into our core strategy from day one. I knew that this wasn't a company I was going to take public. I knew that we were seeing really great at the time, (laughs) good CPG exits. I knew the multiples of CPG then my goodness, I wouldn't want to be in the CPG business today. But um, at the time, (laughs) you know, I I knew that part, but I wanted to see kind of what they valued. And so what happened was we, you know, we got an offer opportunistically, it was a, a PE backed company that was looking to kind of get into the space we were in. Um, but I was able to then take that offer they gave me and I already had a list of everyone else that I had talked to. So I was able to really shop it around. And we drove up our offer tremendously like 40% just by having these sort of conversations and then also we got it to go from our first offer was most equity and then we ended up as you know with an all cash deal so by by but if i had to have made that decision without being able to shop it around because i didn't know who else could potentially be interested or i had to build those relationships from the day i got the first offer Nothing would have happened. And so I do think it's so important for founders. You have a million things on your plate and thinking, you know, three to five years down the line, 10 years down the line is hard to do. But having those conversations as early as possible and just being super transparent about it. I don't I don't think beating around the bush helps you at all. Um, And a lot of these folks like they could also be your customer, they could be a client. you know they you can be working with them in other ways and having these sideline conversations. Like here's what we're doing today. Here's how we can work together today. I'm we're enjoying this and like down the line, if there's ever an opportunity for us to join forces, what do you need to see from us? Having those conversations alongside uh, them being a customer, I think is a really great way to get to know them and also know that they're a, a good, you know, potential acquirer for you.
0: I mean, what a masterclass, Hallie. You just provided our listeners. I mean, <laughs> and hence why she, she's also known yeah. as professor of around the uh, halls of Columbia Business School. Now, I, I love it. And I love uh, the, the strategy. But you went in very deliberately, Hallie. I mean, you had done it before. Yeah. You had scaled other companies before. And so you had some of the war wounds and scars of those processes. And you were very, very, very strategic and deliberate in, in building this business. And I think that's, that's a key. And
1: lucky timing was, I could not do it today. There's, there's, I cannot just underemphasize how much timing and luck um, there is in this game.
0: Totally. Totally. There's always a little bit of good serendipitous timing for sure to all of this.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. So Michael, what is what is a roll up? What does it mean when we say a roll up and what considerations should founders have in mind?
0: Yeah, that's a great question, Helen. It means different things. There's no techno you won't find in Delaware law the term roll up. Uh, what I think we're seeing a lot in healthcare and in health tech is a lot of these uh, point solution type companies are coming together to hopefully create a broader platform that will be more compelling to potential, uh, incumbents and other stakeholders in the healthcare system. And so what, what I'm seeing, uh, a lot happen right now, and I've got a handful of these types of transactions under consideration and underway, is bringing together two venture-backed startups. And that creates really some unique elements that you wouldn't see in, like in your deal, Halley, where you, so artfully negotiated an all-cash deal, oftentimes in these roll-ups, when you're bringing two private companies together, it's mostly equity. And so Mm -hmm. you're, as the founder, working with the founder of the other party, sometimes a merger of equals, by the way, where each side is owning relatively the same. And sometimes there's a dominant venture back startup buying a smaller startup as was, um, the case in the Everly natalist transaction where yeah. Everly Health was the larger, um, uh, player, yeah. obviously, and still
1: called a merger, but
0: it's yeah, right. It's like that's an right. acquisition, it's an but acquisition. it's called a merger. That's right. Like, that's it's right. It's not
1: a merger. That was not a merger. <laughs> because, <so.
0: laughs> that's right. It was not a merger of equals. And so, so you know, bringing together two private company cap tables, it's a little bit like the analogy that 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 once was shared with me. That it, it's like trying to tie two rocks together to see if they'll float. <laughs> And so here, there there are just a lot of key considerations when you're smashing together two cap tables. Are are both sets of investors, for example, going to keep their full liquidation preference? That's a key issue. That could be a deal killer for one side or the other. If if both are going to keep their liquidation preference, are they both rolling into individual series of preferred stock in the combined company or instead are they all, are they all going to be converted into one series of preferred stock, like a series A? And then is there a financing that's going to come in on top of the, the merged yeah. combined company? And so there are lots of considerations when you're bringing together two privately venture backed companies together. And, and I think it's important that you as the founder have those conversations early on because it only gets more complicated. And if you don't have alignment around how are the investors of both cap tables going to be treated, I I think it's a recipe for increasing failure rate uh, and not a recipe for success. So I I do think it's important to keep that in mind. There's lots of securities law issues as well. When you have former employees on your cap tables of either company, what do you do with them? Are they accredited investors? Are they unaccredited? So there, you know, when doing private, yeah. private MA, it's about as complicated as it can get. And oftentimes there isn't a lot of cash in the deal. And you've got potentially banker fees, you've got lawyer fees, you've got other transaction expenses. So it it's not for the faint of heart, uh, for sure. <laughs> yep. And, uh, but, but it could produce an incredible yeah. larger, broader solution for the market. It could. And that's what makes it Do you it have exciting. any
1: data on that though? Like, like how often do, these transactions end up being worth it. And how often are they like, oh man, I just did all that work, and that was that was lame.
0: Yeah, it's it's unfortunately there isn't a lot of data. But colloquially, mm-hmm. when I when I talk okay. to investors, especially uh, uh, the investors on companies that have bought other venture backed startups. Uh, you know, there seems to be general skepticism that those types of mm-hmm. transactions end up working out. Doesn't mean they yeah. don't, but I yeah. think there's skepticism. And I think for good reason, because it's easy to talk about synergies in bringing together GNA functions. But sometimes, uh, you know, there, there's culture differences. There's revenue recognition differences and, and, and you start to see some of that When only until and when the company and the transaction closes and, and it's, it's hard to, hard to completely check the box and do the due diligence upfront on all of that. So I, I, I think as a general matter, uh, you know, skepticism is the right word when approaching private, private M and a, but we've seen, you know, that it can be successful. And, and I think venture investors in this market in 2024, I think we're going to see a lot more risk appetite to engage in it because, uh, it's going to be a tough climate as we talked about.
1: So, I think in general, analysts anticipate slower economic growth through kind of the middle of this year, but are saying that things may improve in the third and fourth quarters and there should be no recession and no new interest rate hikes by the Fed. But also we have the uncertainty of an election. What do you think this year has in store for M&A?
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I think it, it goes a little bit hand in hand with what we're seeing in the venture markets as well. And I think they're right. From what I'm seeing and listening in, I'm privileged to sit in multiple board meetings per week. I get to see, uh, the, the thought process of multiple different venture firms and the partners, the great general partners and other venture partners in those institutions. And the common theme that's emerged as I sit in this unique perch is the first couple of quarters of this year are probably going to look a lot like what Q4 looked like this past year. And so I, I just think it's, you know, it's it's one where we've got to, got to be smart, hunker down, do what you hmm. need to do to live to fight another day and let's see if the back half yeah. opens up. But to your point, with the presidential election coming up, with control of Congress, you know, up in the air, I, I think that uncertainty isn't going to uh, ensure that the back half is better if all other economic fundamentals are improving. But but I but I do yeah. feel optimistic that as as I said earlier, as yeah. expectations around valuation, both in the venture and MA side start to yeah. align more between company and investor and between company and buyer, I think there's a world where we start to yeah. see more activity. Um, we need it in digital health. Look, the reality is <laughs> really we <too>. need this. <laughs> and we got companies yeah. with a lot of great point solutions. And, and I, think, yeah. I think the yeah. incumbents and the stakeholders in our ecosystem wants broader solutions and broader platforms. Yeah. So I expect to see a lot of roll up um, and, yeah. and a lot of activity yes. in that sense.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think we're starting to see some truly cutting edge technology that would be easier to buy than build. And so hopefully that also creates I don't know how large of a sale that could be, but if there is something that, you know, a United Health or one of the, you know, more common acquirers is like, "Hey, we want to get into this quickly. We're not going to build it ourselves. It's easier for us to acquire." Hopefully that opens it up. Um so just like a clarifying question on what you were saying. So last year we saw both fewer deals and the deals, just the multiples were also lower, right? So fewer, smaller deals. The the buyers had an upper hand there. Do you feel like we're going to see the same thing, where like the multiples are lower, but there might be more deals?
0: Yeah, I I think I think part of that is that we're working through the psychology of, hey, yes, I raised a Series B at a billion dollars on a 100x <laughs> NTM multiple. <laughs> When I, if I were to go out into the venture markets today, I probably am raising at three or 400 million, hopefully. And so maybe an M&A offer in that zip code becomes somewhat attractive, especially when mm. you consider, hey, listen, this is an opportunity to combine my technology, my vision with uh, a, an, another partner that could really help accelerate it being part of a larger organization, et cetera. Yeah. So, so I, I do think, I do think it will pick up because of the normalization around expectations around those valuations and also yeah uh, you know I'm 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 optimistic that you know maybe interest rates won't stay this high as the fed alluded to and and therefore yeah. increase the risk appetite of many of the uh, buyers and and investors in those companies going forward.
1: Yes. Well, as investors and supporters of founders, you and I both can just hope <laughs> for the best. Please. Yes. Well, listeners, thank you all so much for tuning in. Next week, we are going to talk about another type of ending for a company, and that's a wind down. If you subscribe, you can listen right away as soon as it's released. And if we could ask for a very quick favor, please support the show by leaving us five stars in Apple Podcasts. We know you're listening and we appreciate you joining us each week. And that's closing time for today. A huge thanks to our partners at Fenwick for underwriting this show. Recording, editing, and audio mixing by Kyle Moore. Thanks to our guests and to you, our listeners, for joining us. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. And check out our website, closingtimepodcast.com for more exclusive content. Until next time, this is Hallie Tecco and Michael Esquivel for Closing
0: Time.